Welcome to How to Decorate from Ballard Designs, a podcast all about the trials and triumphs of decorating and redecorating your home. Each week, they'll help you unleash your inner decorator. I'm Caroline. I write the How to Decorate blog. And I'm Taryn, and I'm a product designer. And I'm Karen. I head up Ballard's branding team. We're We're your hosts. Join the expert team at Ballard Designs for tips, tricks, and tales from interior designers, stylists, and other talents in the design world. Plus, we'll answer a listener question at the end of the show. So don't forget to send them to podcast at BallardDesigns.net. Yes, we love answering them. And now, on with the show. Okay, so our guests today are architects Peter Penoyer and Alice Engel of Peter Penoyer Architects. It's it. In its 30 years, Peter Penoyer Architects has built over 200 projects ranging from significant landmark structures to new condominium towers and private residences. They have a 50-person team of architects and interior designers who work all over the country with an office in New York and Miami. Their work has been recognized by Architectural Digest, Veranda, El Decor, Town & Country, and many more. And Peter also has six books with your colleague, Ann Walker. Peter is the founding partner, of course, and Alice Ingle is the director of their interior design department. So thank you both so much for for joining us. We thank have you so much. You have a big body of work, so it was fun to um, just dive into it. And thank you, thank you. I, it's hard to even know where to start. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I agree. I was on your website for a very long time. Like I studied you guys for a long time, and I still don't feel like. I have the full meal, I guess. <laughs> well, Taryn, I was thinking of you the entire time because Taryn is doing her own project right now and about to start a project from the ground up. And so I was like, oh, I bet she's going to really pick the brains. <laughs> oh, that's so exciting, Taryn. Congrats. That's fantastic. Where are you building? Um, well, Caroline and I are both in Atlanta, Georgia, so I'm actually right. building um, on our property. Um, we're in a nice little neighborhood, and we love it, and it's right on a park. So we are knocking down a 1950s ranch to build um, something a little more fitting for our family. So, um, yeah, it's super exciting, but you guys do this all day, so I'm sure this would be like a walk in the park for you guys. But for <laughs> someone like me, it seems a little overwhelming. So it's been wonderful to look at your work and thank you. Just, thank you. But it's, it's brave to do it for yourself. I mean, really, you know, like it's one thing to do it for other people, but when architects and designers work for mm-hmm. themselves, we sometimes, or at least I do try experimenting, which is sometimes gets you in trouble with your wife, but <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And we have so many options and we, it's almost like we know too much. So designing mm-hmm. for, for oneself is, is always we are our own hardest clients, I find. Right. Yeah. How do you narrow it down? I mean, because oh, you could really do it all. hard. Well, a lot <laughs> of it comes down to cost, obviously. But, right, right. Um, but no, I mean, it, the project, I mean, we did our own apartment a few years ago and it, it could have gone on forever if I'd let it, but. <laughs> you drew the line. <laughs> we drew the line. Yeah. And you chose a charming building. I mean, that's the thing about Built, uh, you know, renovating in an old structure that we all find so rewarding. Mm-hmm. And Alice did it for herself. It's a building that has uh, artist studios, aren't they, Alice? Yes. Or? Yeah. So it's a um, 1928 building here in Manhattan. And um, it's unusual in that it's on the Upper East Side um, and has double height ceilings. It was um, built wow. as sort of an artist 
artist studio building. It's called uh, Morgan Studios, and it's just um, it's it feels sort of European in its scale, um, and we love it. It's um, it was a a, a project, um, a sort of a labor of love, but um, we're we've been here about a year now, settled, and it's um, it's a it's a joy. Well, like I said, that you have you have so you know your firm has so many projects under its belt, and just going through your body of work, I okay. This is might seem like a strange question, but I was wondering if it ever can feel heavy to do what you do because some of the spaces, um, the structures in your portfolio look like they could be hundreds of years old. And I imagine if you're designing a building, you really want it to have staying power. So how do you balance designing for a client, uh, an individual family, uh, their particular needs, but also designing a space that you think will, you know, last hundreds of years as you would probably be your hope? Well, I mean, first of all, we really care about the way things are put together and this is on the architecture side and in Alice's work, the quality of the materials, the quality of the construction, the longevity, and um, the sort of, you know, science of good building practice is really important. And I think people sense that even people who don't, you know, realize it right away. And I think that gives you longevity. The other mm-hmm. thing is just being practical and helping people think through their wish list. We always start with a written wish list before we draw anything. So we really want to know how many rooms you really need, <clears throat> how big they might be. And this leads you to kind of a budget and a way of getting your head around what you're mm-hmm. getting yourself into. So if someone says, I want a bunk room, you know, well, that's wonderful. And your, your kids, I mean, there's something so romantic and captivating when you're you know, six years old, the idea of having a friend <laughs> ever and all being in these bunks. But we like to say, well, before you know it, you know, that's actually going to be a, a, another bedroom. And so let's mm-hmm. do this in a way that it can evolve over time. Let's not put anything in your house that's going to become kind of an orphan room. Mm-hmm. And I would say the same goes for furnishings and, and loose pieces in the house, which is what I do. It um, it really comes down to craftsmanship and and materials. And, and we we are only as good as our, our best craftsmen and, and vendors. So we, we cherish those relationships. And one of my favorite parts about the job is, is visiting, um, visiting our workrooms and checking on, on custom furniture in progress. Um, mm-hmm. We have some of the best cabinet makers here in New York. So that's, um, it's always to treat a treat to work with them um, and to build something that will really last for the client, whether it's, you know, for, a house uh, in the country or a city apartment, or maybe they move it from here to there or to a new house someday. And we, we try to anticipate that. Mm-hmm. You got, I was reading where the AD did uh, the walkthrough of your day, Peter. And yeah. um, <laughs> well, and I'm bringing this back to what you were just saying is just, you were talking about how you took, you took the plans to go uh, to review them and you were, you we're putting pots and pans in the cabinets in the kitchen or like in the sense of like you were looking at the plans and making sure like what's going in here, what's all going to fit. Um, mm-hmm. And I just thought that was a really, you know, great. So practical. <laughs> I know, but it, well, in, in, in one sense, it doesn't take any great intellect to figure that out. On the other <laughs> sense, if you don't do it, you have yeah. to be humble when it comes to being an architect of houses. At a certain point, you have to say, well, actually, these little things are going to really be super important and, and endlessly mm-hmm. annoying if they're not just looked looked into 
before you invest. And kitchen cabinetry is really expensive. So you may as well, you know, put everything in the right place. No one ever follows. We, we, we issue the drawing and it says where the pots and pans and like, I like to separate Ferris and not, you know, the nonstick stuff, which is a little over the top, but like no one ever <laughs> follows that. At least they know that it's, you know, we're, we're down to earth in the sense that we actually, you know, like I cook and I actually just actually before this loaded the dishwasher. So like, I know how things work. <laughs> Why would they not follow your plan? If you well, draw me a plan, I would follow where you told me to put the pots and pans. Yeah, it never <laughs> works out that way. I, you know, you're, you're never going to get it 100%, but you try. There was, there was something that I was um, reading that was talking about um, elements that you like to use. And I found that there to be some unusual some things that you use here and there. And I was wondering if there are, if you have any sort of architectural features or anything that you feel like don't get there, um, I guess, do like maybe people don't use them very much, but you love them and you find them to be very functional or beautiful. Maybe I should give you an example. Like <laughs> I need an example. <laughs> so there were there were a couple of times where like you use lots of turrets, which I feel like are not super common, or portica shares, um, relief, you know, elements um, on you know exterior, anterior, and I loved all of those. And the and because um, they're such, they have such a. Um, I guess, time-honored feel to them. And I imagine make a new home feel old, but do you think there's a reason you, you like them and that other people don't always use them? Why are you laughing at me, Taryn? Yeah. Well, I mean, when it comes to, um, you know, architecture, ornament is such gives such delight, mm -hmm. you know, to our clients. And it's challenging to design, um, but it personalizes a house and it joins art with architecture. And the architects that I admire from the first half of the 20th century did have artistic training and worked very mm -hmm. closely with artists in a collaborative way that um, really joined the art to the architecture. So if I'm able to do a bas-relief panel, it's, it's a joy. And I'm doing a house now where we're thinking about that and we're finding precedence. And a house in the historic district off of Madison Avenue, um, a small house, we were able to you know put back the historic railings. We found a source for them. But I wanted the top of each post to be at the, next to the front door, a little, you know, in the iron. We made uh, bulldog heads. And, you know, the, the Landmarks Commission people were like, what, what are you doing? And I said, you can, <laughs> let, you can let me do this. You know? So and bringing ornament and sculpture and working with the sculpture is an absolute joy. Uh, working with craftsmen. And, I mean, Alice can talk about it in her area. Yeah. But, like, we work with... Um, uh, carvers in who are carving in Kabul, Afghanistan, in the old city, using Afghan walnut and and carving uh, in these screens in Islamic geometry. I mean, we love to do those as interior windows. Um, and and Alice, did, you did a, a table of that, right, in a, in a project? Recently. Yes, we did, and in a recent project in Ohio, and and I. I would say also just on the more functional end of architecture, I, I have the pleasure with my team of uh, working with our architects from a very early stage, sort of earlier than other decorators um, come into the picture. Um, and one of the things that always amazes me is um, the way that our team is, a, is able to work in um, storage in the most unusual places in 
the jams of portals, for example, hidden closets, and um, and then the other functional piece that we're using now on a on a project in the West Village here in New York is um, interior shutters, which is also sort of a timeless detail that they were original to the house and and we're using them again. Um, they provide endless features. I mean, privacy and, and they mm-hmm. cool the house. I mean, it, and they also fold beautifully into the structure of the window. So um, they go away completely when they're not in use. So um, that it's a, it's a treat to, to see those architectural details come into play. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, there was a dining room that had uh, glass storage and dinnerware storage behind the panel. I mean, well, if you want to know why we have to do that, it's because when we make mm-hmm. a room with curves like that, you end up wasting space because there's this mm-hmm. curve. And then people look at the plan and say, what did you do with my, you know, because in New York, <laughs> it costs, well, every square foot costs thousands of dollars. So I say, guess what? We're going to make that wall open. And then you're going to have, in that case, 14 shelves in each corner of the room, three and a half feet wide. And I said, you know, that's, as a young couple, I said, that's, that will store all the wedding presents you never want to look at again, you know. <laughs> That's pretty good. Does that make your life more difficult, Alice? Because then you don't need, you know, beautiful sideboards and... um... No, in fact, (laughs) it makes it it so much easier. And, and, you know, it's it's really... um, it's really fun to work alongside the architects and and to think of these solutions. And often it 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 allows you if you if you have if you don't have a need for those storage pieces, then mm. you, you it frees you up to to put something else there, a beautiful piece of art or you know a a stunning console that is maybe sort of lighter visually um, than something heavy um, and uh, you know a case piece that is a mm-hmm. necessary storage piece. Yeah. That does remind me, because I was going to ask that, because you have quite a few bathrooms that are gorgeous in your portfolio, but are, they don't, they're not cabinets. The sinks, you know, you like, you have like a floating pedestal sink or something. And you're, I was like, well, where are you storing stuff? Because I know they have stuff. People. <laughs> where is the, where's the, the hair face cream? Yeah. Where's the it's, hair dryer? It's in, it's, it's in the wall. <laughs> so they're panels yeah. and the, it looks like a panel, but you pop it open in their shelves extra deep eight inches, you know, so that you have room to store things. So there's always a place if you look at the plan carefully and you don't have to do it, you know, in the medicine cabinet, you don't have to do it in a conventional way as long as it's, you know, convenient. Convenience. Brilliant. God, you guys (laughs) are just. So, okay. So now, Alice, you said they bring you in early. So how early do they bring you in like on a project? Um, very early. If it's um, a new client um, who comes in the door without having an established relationship already with an with a decorator, then um, Peter often suggests my team um, to them pretty early on from the very first meetings, um, so that the client can begin to think about furnishings because that's often the most beneficial to the client. Is um, mm-hmm. you know. A, a, a process whereby furnishings and, and architecture go hand in hand. Um, I can pitch in and work with the architects on finished schedules and choosing materials that make sense for the clients. Um, and also little things like, you know, making the window pockets deep enough for our, our curtains and, and all these things that, um, 
sometimes escape the early stages of mm -hmm. you know the architects and, and no matter who we're, no matter which designer we're working with and it is you know we love working with alice but we we often work with my wife, Katie Ritter, who has her own right. firm. We work with we just all had her on the show. Okay, we we have all sorts of wonderful designers who we work with, but we always put the the furniture in the plan because the clients don't shouldn't have to look at an architect's plan with empty rooms. It doesn't really mm -hmm. help, right? You need to know at least where the bed wall is and at least where how you're facing the view and. Mm -hmm. And then the t the question we always hate, like, how do I see the TV and the fireplace <laughs> and the view at the same time? You know, so right. The <laughs> so, okay, if I am like Taryn and I'm starting from scratch, what do I need to know before I go and I hire you, or I, you know, even think about getting plans drawn? Well, you, I mean, for any architect, you should develop your wish list of, of how many rooms. Um, and you shouldn't edit your wish list. I feel you should make every room have its own qualities and, and each room has a wish list. And, and you shouldn't feel like you can't have contradictory goals because you should just put it all in and then try to solve it. So you may say, I want my breakfast room to have morning light, but you, you may say, I also want the sunset. So put it all in, then come up with um, room sizes that are obviously not going to be the size so that you can then extrapolate and come up with the size of the house. So you mm -hmm. take all the rooms and you multiply it by 1.3 basically. And that tells you the square footage of the house. That's sort of historically where it ends up. And then it also helps you see what the budget is, which is the scary part, right? And then <laughs> if, if it's too big, all our wish lists are tend to be bigger than we actually wanted. We say, I didn't want a 5,000 square foot house. I only wanted 4,000. So then you can work out before you invest in drawings and or, or altering drawings, which is no fun, um, you know, what you really need and what you really want. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. The other thing is to understand what kinds of drawings the architect does, wh whether they do elevations of e each room, whether they draw moldings or just use them from a catalog. They're, you know, happy people in wonderful houses <clears throat> where everything is more or less from a catalog, and that's fine. So, you know, if you're, you come to a firm like ours, that's not what you're getting and it may not be what you need. You should understand the difference in scale. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, I would say just to be realistic with yourself and, and the architect or designer about your the way you live and, and, and be candid, completely candid about that, whether it's, it's casual uh, or whether it's a more formal um, living environment. Are there kids? Are there, you know, elderly in-laws? to think about um it's it's a lifestyle thing and and mm -hmm. that should be um first and foremost you know from the very first meetings yeah are there any uh mistakes you find people make in the process <laughs> well i mean i think it's very easy to overreach and sort of because you've stored up we all do this. We all store up our dreams about, you know, the house we, we want, right? And then you kind mm -hmm. of fill, fill it and fill it and fill it and you can, you can overreach a bit. Um, and so I think that, you know, sort of ratcheting things back gets you a much happier outlook, especially if it allows you to invest in better materials mm -hmm. and just, you know, just a higher grade of construction by just building less. I just really feel the investment should be um, you know, something that is for, for the long term and life cycles of houses are important to us just just in terms of the way we look at the environment. Like we really don't want to build a house. I never want to see a house I built have you know, torn down because it didn't function well or it didn't mm -hmm. grow with the family or didn't work. 
you know, I liked the idea that you make a house and it will just keep evolving and runs will be used in a different way. And someone might even open up a different door or do something different. But uh, you really don't want to um, make it too specific stylistically to today's moment. Um, and so I do. I actually don't mind having people not recognize one of our houses immediately because I feel like it should belong to the, the place and time. And mm -hmm. it doesn't have to, it, it's not the moment in terms of design, it's just the place in terms of the family and the environment context. Mm -hmm. And on the furnishing side, I would say mistakes are often made um, in not valuing quality. I would say, you know, they're um, right. they're often clients are, are tempted to, especially these days, to shop online or, or or see what it is that is out there, and that's um, that's something we all do, right? It's all available to us now online, so um, it can be tempting to um, to order something that is, you know, made cheaply just to to fill a need right now. But often um, it backfires, and and that piece needs a replacement in two three years. Mm -hmm. And it's great when people have the confidence to ex want to express themselves and have the house reflect them, and not. You know, it's 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 difficult if you if you feel like the house has to look like uh, something you've seen in a magazine. It becomes too detached from you know who you are. So, the more personal, the better, I think. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I was going to ask about your house up in um, the Hudson Valley again. Just where did you? Because you built that from the ground up. Is that correct? Yes. How so? How did you, somebody that's classically trained in all this, pick a style? And go for it, you know, like, I want to know more about that. You know, so I've all, always wanted to build a, a, a square villa, which is, you know, a house that is like an object in space and doesn't have wings, but is something that you can look at from all four sides and have it be sort of a resolved architectural whole. Um, and I've been drawing houses like that forever. I'm lucky and our firm is really lucky that we are a collaboration and we have other people who have a hand in designs in a big way. And one of them is a man named Gregory Gilmartin, who's worked with me for longer than I want to tell you, <laughs> but it's longer than 30 years. And so Gregory, a lot of the best ideas and a lot of the designs um, in our office are come from the hand of people who, who work with me. Uh, mm -hmm. There's Gregory uh, there's a designer now uh, in our office named Eero Schultz, um, who has a fantastic Instagram. He posts a house a day, a facade a day. Oh my <laughs> um, gosh! And, and so, there, you know, and Gregory drew. I, I mean, I was in, in a tailspin drawing this house over and over and never being able to stop. And Gregory kind of got a grip on it, and so, and and choosing the style. This is a style that belongs in the Hudson Valley. It's Greek Revival. There are a lot of things here that just seem like they belong. I was so going to belonging. So back to your ornamental that you put on a home. How do you not go too far with the little touches that again give such a house character? I always try to avoid having too many interesting events or motifs on a house. You know, I think it's you, you really want to. I prefer the you know what what do you call it? Not enough, just enough butter for the bread. <laughs> point of view. And I think that we can all, you know, put too many clever ideas on a facade. And, you know, the typical thing is you see a house that has a plating window and a charming gable and a charming dormer 
uh, you know, and and some some columns and you know all these things on the street, and then you walk out the back door and look back at it, and it's kind of a simple thing with you know too much glass. So I think it's better to be consistent. I think it's better to only try to do one, uh, you know, one main event, one one feature of, of interest. And the same goes for interiors. It's um, it's really a matter of developing a like an, a visual language early on that is consistent room to room. Of course, not every room needs to be the same color, but they should relate, right? And and you should understand that you're in the same house as you as you walk through the space, um, whether it's you know wallpapers or patterns that complement one another or um, you know similar moldings. Um, and it's it's really just a matter of developing this this visual language that is consistent. Mm-hmm. Often we have um, designers and architects on the, sh- on the show, they always talk about natural light, how important it is um, to both the design and just your happiness in the house. It's, we were talking to someone recently and they were you know, saying it, it's like just this thing that you don't necessarily um, realize you need until you don't have it. And then um, you're, it, you know, it really impacts the way that you feel about the space. So I was just wondering if there are ways when you are either, um, house hunting or building or renovating, you know, how can you take, can, and can you take a home that maybe doesn't have lots of natural light, you know, add it in? Uh, as, you know, as an architect, I look at plan types and when you see a square house, which usually has, you know, obviously the rooms at the perimeter have natural light, but there are houses that have, center hall and that's often a place that doesn't have light and that kind of becomes a dark spot in the house what i like to do there is bring in light from from the sky not directly through a skylight but through what's called the lay light which is like a window in your ceiling that sits below an actual skylight or better yet a cupola which is a piece of the roof which lifts up and allows you to have windows all the way around I think mm-hmm. it's really terrific to be able to bring light in that way. I also think the best way of increasing the light is to, uh, it, it's not good enough just to have windows facing the light. You need to have backlight. You need to always get light from more than one direction in a room for it to feel pleasant. So mm-hmm. aligning doorways so that you step into uh, a hall and see light at both ends or see into rooms and see those kinds of transparency within a house increases your sense of, of, of the light. That makes sense. And, and, but would have never been something I'd thought about, you know, having, um, like how many directions do you feel like people would need in a room to two, three? I, I mean, two, two is fine. Um, three is better. You can always have bar, <laughs> borrowed light. Yeah. Well-placed mirror. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Borrowed light. Wait, what's borrowed light? Well, if you have a room that has an opening into a hall and the the light spills into that end, Mm -hmm. but you're not actually looking directly at, you know, the window. And there's, of course, we've all been in houses that have huge sheets of glass, you know, facing southwest. And it's, you know, that is light. It's like way Mm -hmm. too much light. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who has a house you have to wear sunglasses. You know. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> and having and having the solar shades down isn't great because then you're cutting your view. So, mm-hmm. I think a lot of the way uh, traditional architecture modulated light before we had uh, before we used carbon to heat houses and before we had air conditioning, they had porches and solar orientation was something that worked with without having to 
make up for, um, you know, uh, the, the lack of comfort in the house, you know, mm-hmm. or overheating or glare. Um, yeah. So there was a project that, um, you did in Ohio that just totally blew my mind because it was unlike anything I've ever seen before. And I'm certain, you know, which one I'm talking about because it was <laughs> so unusual and, um, you know, it blended together traditional and modern in this way that was completely unexpected. Um, it was almost like a sculpture. So I was just wondering if you could kind of give everyone a little description of it. And yeah. And where'd you, you know, find this house, Caroline? Is this the one on? Um, it was in AD yeah, and okay. Vogue China, which of course I saw the Vogue China one first and I was like, well, I can't really read this because it's in Chinese, but, <laughs> <laughs> but then I found the AD one. So I was right. Okay. Well, I feel like a listener will also want to look at this after he describes it. So. Yes. Right. And, uh, you know, interestingly, even though it was in Vogue China, we've got not gotten one call from China asking us to come over. <laughs> <laughs> no one. Radio silence. <laughs> it's a career dead end. You know, so, so the house is a symmetrical house that looks, um, you know, somewhat traditional and started off in the early days. Of the design is, is an arts and crafts influenced uh, white stucco house with stone trim and steep slate roofs. Um, and then our client was inspired by a style called Czech Cubism, which is a precursor to Art Deco and is a style that only existed really for eight years from 1906 to 1914 in the Czech Republic. And so it's a very <laughs> strange style that has to do with prismatic shapes, angles. It's almost like a geometricized Gothic. And, um, and our friend Gregory, again, was able to learn this language and design a house that is a setting for a collection of decorative arts and art. And the, the grounds are a sculpture park also. Um, so wow. um, it's, but, but so, you know, um, Alice, um, you know, was uh, learning more about the history of lamps and lampshades. <laughs> Remember your lampshade Excel spreadsheet? <laughs> oh, yes. Do I ever? Um, it, that's hard to forget. We had a, um, we, uh, we had a steep learning curve with, um, antique light fixtures the client was a joy to work with and a really committed art and design collector um and really scoured the globe to find the most unique uh, pieces at auction um that related both related to this period and and related to art deco um and and even more contemporary items so um putting all of those pieces together was um was a lot of fun and we um we even developed with some some of our custom workrooms some you know pretty beautiful lampshades to coordinate with these lamp bases that he found in France or you know just really one of a kind canapes that um that really knock your socks off it was yeah, you, it was a joy can, to to be able to work with him on that Alice didn't go to like you know lampshades.com when it when she was handed a <laughs> pair of Eileen Gray pearwood lamps that were hidden in a museum i mean so the whole thing wow. so you studied it she got the shape every shape was custom every fabric every trim for every single lampshade and then they all had to fit on these weird european right. bases and 
Yeah, my, my husband actually made sure there was a stop in Prague for our honeymoon, so I could see some of the original <laughs> examples of this architecture. Did you oh actually gosh. did you actually go visit Wolfgang when you did the, the the Hoffman fixture? We sure did. We had another stop in Vienna um, on my honeymoon that was um, to visit really um, one of the the premier um, lighting vendors, Voca, um, which some people know about here in the states um, and is run by a lovely man named Wolfgang. Um, and he, he developed some of the most beautiful light fixtures for this project um, that were period appropriate, um, but also totally forward looking and modern at the same time. But sometime we went a little off the reservation. So the house has the Eileen Gray, Lee Parazan, which is a famous work of hers. It's a fantastic day bed. And the research showed that it had, right, a sable blanket, Alice, right? Yes, correct. So it turns out that a sable blanket that's eight by seven costs, you know, half a million dollars. So uh, up here where I am in the Hudson Valley, we have a man who uh, traps uh, coyotes. So uh, anyway, so for the farm, for farmers, so <laughs> we made a coyote blanket. <laughs> <gasps> and it looks oh. stunning. My gosh. Well, I, I mean, down to the bathtubs and the headboards. I mean, you guys... It blew yeah. this one out of the park for sure. There was this ceiling that I, it, I don't even really know how to describe it, except that it looked it looks like a sculpture in and of itself. It's like the world's coolest. I know Cofford is not the right word because that's you know something very different. But it I, how do you even describe the ceiling? Can you well, tell people? It's uh, so there's several <laughs> kinds of ceilings, but they're all based on angles and planes intersecting planes and so there's like triangles projected into essentially crystal forms and then made into plaster ceilings um uh, you know and, there, and there's a lot of variety of them it's a real work of art it, it is it looks like so much math that my head literally like looking at it it's amazing it's and amazing. imagine the poor contractor because like, no. the angle had to line up with the exact he hates spot you. on the well <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because uh, he has to line it all perfectly. Oh I know. My God. Yeah, it was laying it out. That's that's a little tricky, right? So, so did I, you do three D models in that case for that one? Yes, we printed a model of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, and but but we also had the ability to you know do three D uh, uh, forms on right. the on the screen and right. <laughs> and we made a lot of we print pieces of the house. To, we have a big three D printer, so we can print little bits of ironwork and things to show people how to do, what to do. And I, I guess to me, it just seemed like your architectural drawings were as much sculpture as they were structure. Um, because, it, you know, kind of to your point about ornamental elements, they were all so bold, but so subtle. I don't know. It just was, I loved it. It was Thank incredible. You. Thank you very much. <laughs> Um, and Alice, did you charge Peter for the, your time <laughs> on your honeymoon <laughs> studying? No, no, that was pure fun for me. <laughs> and she didn't complain to HR. <laughs> I mean, you're very lucky you have her. Then. No, that was a total treat. I mean, like I said earlier, visiting workrooms is and and um, museums and all of that is is something I I do in my off hours anyway, and I, I really <laughs> jumped at the chance. Yeah, no, I, I did say the best trip though. I got to go to Pietra Santa, Italy, to check on the tub before it was packed, before it was crated. I said, "You have to send me over there because you know, what if it comes and it's 
wrong or if it's as a hole in it, I better go inspect. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a bad trip. You your family with you. <laughs> uh, you know, I did. I, it was a quickie, so I went. Oh, and, yeah, that is amazing. Um, and it's carved from one single block. One block oh. that we found. So I, we went with the client and chose uh, 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 all the slabs and all the blocks. And it actually was a good idea to go back because they're, all the mantelpieces are also carved in that same town uh, by this family-owned business. And so, uh, and and we really do believe in um, you know connecting with the artisans, the craftsmen, the contractors, um, and not just saying oh, here's the drawing, you know, make it happen. We we try to be um, collaborative and, and, and listen, you know, and, and these things are making one off uh, objects uh, is, is challenging. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, well, I have to wonder, is this, you know, is what type of, what type of projects are your most challenging? This has to be one of them. Is it not? I, I think that was you know, <laughs> one of the most challenging uh, projects for sure. I, I, we, we, restored a, uh, a dome uh, on a, a, na- a late 19th century building uh, on Lower Fifth Avenue in New York. Mm-hmm. And that was extremely difficult because uh, it was a tricky piece of architecture and it had to be completely recreated in copper using uh, custom dye stamps to create all the Victorian ornament. And that was just extremely uh, tricky. Tell everyone about this project because this was the one that was the three-story, but the, the this dome, is the one yes. that's done on top. Yeah. Yes. So, and we did work with uh, Jan Herpikorni, architects who specialized in the technical aspects of preservation. So we can't claim, you know, that we solved it all. <laughs> so, but you can for the purposes of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you can speak. Well, you know, when they so when, when the client bought it, the top room of this dome had windows that looked diagonally out on the whole city. What had the developer done? They put a bathtub in that room and then a glass box with a sink and the toilet in it and a shower. So it's just like this sort of newfangled wet room bathroom concept. And there was a huge steel beam that you almost hit your head on that supported a flagpole that came down through the middle. It's, I'm, I, maybe I'm losing the, the thread here of the story, but let's say it was a total It sounds mess. crazy. So, so we did, our engineers here, Brilliant, put, uh, steel up in a, like an umbrella and then uh, to hold the flagpole so that they could cut the all the steel out, which sounds dangerous, but they like it was fine. I said, I don't want to be there when they actually cut it. I, I, <laughs> I'll skip that visit. But so then we were able to build a dome. And then with once we did the dome, we were able to complete the room and make it a round room with bookcases. And um, and then we had this wonderful metal workers, La Forge of Steel, and they made a bronze spiral stair. Um, so it was really, really fun. That one I think was an AD as well. So it was. <laughs> See, okay, good. I'm telling you because people are going to look this stuff up after, so. <laughs> as they should, as they should. That's why we're talking about it because they should go check it out. So I, I think I imagine that many designers and architects and ever you know people in the um, in this field are thinking maybe differently about home in this unusual time that we're in. And I was wondering if there, um, you know, now that everyone's home, people are rethinking their spaces. Do you think there's going to be a lasting influence um, on the way we live in and build our homes based off, you know, the the nine months that we've had these past 
definitely. I mean, I of course uh, there will be a trend to um, towards home office spaces. I mean, I think that was already happening um, pre-COVID, mm-hmm. and that is here to stay. Um, and also, I I think the idea of privacy in a home and, and carving out one's own space in a home might change the way we think about open floor plans. Um, mm-hmm. But I'll let Peter weigh in on that too. Yeah, no, I mean, we, you know, we have always um, offered uh, sound insulation in our projects, you know, where you actually have work with an acoustical engineer and, you know, figure out how to make uh, a room truly um, you know, quiet from the house. And mm-hmm. I mean, this is just a detector. I mean, I think that's when you're working from home, that's important. I think that the light throughout the, all the, all the best architectural qualities become more important as you spend the day in your house. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I don't know that there are any other specific, you know, concerns that come out of this situation that would change architectural style. I do think that people appreciate architecture that feels timeless and feels like it will endure Mm-hmm. When we're in a insecure period, um, my my own take on New York when I came back after a couple of months away was that I felt like the old buildings seem even more sort of dignified and reassuring to me, and some of the ones that were all glass, because you look in and no one's in those buildings and the lights are all off. They they seemed a little bit ephemeral and sad compared to the, you know, stout, you know, I don't know compared to the Whitney Museum, which is this newfangled <laughs> thing, to the Met, it was sort of good to see these old stone buildings with all their wonderful carving and friezes. Uh, but that may actually just be entirely my my um, attraction to, to history and tradition <laughs> speaking. So, No, that's beautiful. It's a beautiful way to look at it. And mm-hmm. it's, yeah. um, I think it's something in general that our city lacks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and just we don't have the depth, you know, so it is, it's true that some of the older buildings just feel so good. I mean, Um, I tell people like when you're, I'm sorry, you know, when we're doing a townhouse and someone is paying for to do a whole facade in stone and restoring a stoop with all that ironwork, it's a real investment. I I tell clients who are willing to do that. You're, it's a civic gesture. You're doing something for the street and your neighbors in the city. Mm-hmm. And right. I, I mean, I don't tell them this will way outlast you and me, you know, like we'll be there forever. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the kind of thing I think that the pandemic makes me think about is what can you do that will, that will give, continue to give, you know, not just for your own home, but for your street or your, your town, what's going to be a good thing to make people happy to look at in the future. Mm-hmm. That's a good note for me. So I won't build a <laughs> pile of garbage for my neighbor. <laughs> it's a good point. It's true. How much do you appreciate the some of the houses on your street, Taryn? Because no, it is true. Somebody, there are a few that are yeah interesting. Yeah, no, when, it's true. When Frank Gehry built his first house, which I love in Santa Monica, which is just crazy, mm-hmm. um, the neighbors hated it so much that when he went on vacation, finally they. He found a health notice, I think it was from the health department. They they made a petition to have it torn down as a health hazard. Not the welcome back. <laughs> he was looking for it. No, and it's a fantastic house. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking that one up too after this. Um, I did want to ask about your um, library that's at y'all's mm-hmm. office. Um, it says you have over 10,000 books. Just under, I think, but it's oh. a lot, a lot, a lot. 
Okay, so how often are you using these? What are your favorites? Do you guys, you know, do all parts of your, you know, does every department get to read them or does Peter keep them all to himself? Well, they, they're, <laughs> they're, they're used every day and it's it's a tremendous resource. And it's really in, in the plan of our office, it's the actual sort of heart of our office um, physically. So um, people are always passing through and um, Gregory Gilmartin is... Um, you know, he is sort of the curator of the library and knows precisely where every book goes. So <laughs> every time I take a book out, I always have to ask Gregory where it goes back um, because it's forgotten. But um, no, he he has a wonderful eye for, for new books coming in and getting published and, and is always setting those out um, for us to look at as well. And um, the subjects range from garden design to interiors to um, metalwork to um, historical houses of course so it's um it really informs the office and um every part of what we do and and it keeps growing we keep acquiring books and yesterday uh, i went to visit a friend who's an architect in his 80s he's downscaling his office a lot and he did you see the books alice he sent me yes. back to the <laughs> office with nine books that had been his <laughs> half of them were his father's oh they're and beautiful so, yeah. wow and, and also yesterday, I went into a book that was published in 1872, which is so pristine. Yeah. And it's a guide to the painter, uh, to faux graining and decorative painting as a, as a profession in 1872. The plates are hand painted and they have little tissue over them. And in some of the plates, someone in the 19th century used it to press leaves. So there's a beautiful ghost of maple leaf. And I found the most beautiful a painting of American black walnut. And so that's going to be a model for a room in a project from a book that no one even knows about that was published in 1872. No, it's a tremendous. Like when, when you're touching this book, aren't you? I don't know. That's crazy. You know, we love to touch them. And Anna and I also teach an NYU class and we tell, we bring out the most precious books and we tell the students just go through them, touch the paper, you don't have to wear white gloves. Just you know, don't don't eat French fries before you show up for this class. But, <laughs> and uh, I, I encourage my team always to to go to books first for inspiration. Um, it's so easy, of course, to hit Google and you know look for do an image search online. But um, but really, the, the the richest resources often come from from books and, and our library in particular. Mm-hmm. Okay, so do you have some favorites of your of both of you? Ones that you will never forget. Good question. Favorite book, Alice? Come on. Actually, well, there's one right behind me um, called The Art of <laughs> Ornament, <laughs> which um, is a little bit of a cheat because I'm looking at it, but it it, um, <laughs> it is um, it is something I, I turn to time and again. And I actually studied textile design uh, in graduate school, so I'm I come from a place of um, surface design and, and pattern and um, I'm always considering materials and, and color and um, and how ornament will will figure into a, a certain space so that's one uh, I guess my, my favorite is one that I've owned since I was 20 years old which is of, in addition to Vitruvius published in in Paris in 1684 by the architect of the West facade of the Louvre, who was just a polymath. He was a doctor and a scientist. And, and he did this absolutely gorgeous book. And the plates are amazing. 
Um, and, uh, my, uh, you know, so it has absolutely beautiful moldings and details and plates, but it also happens to be a book that was owned by Thomas, Je not this actual copy, but Thomas Jefferson had that in his probate, in, in his in his property when he died. And a couple of the moldings can be found in Monticello. So it's just an amazing bit of American history. Mm -hmm. And it's not something I go to every day. And we actually design our moldings so that we don't use those kinds of plates as pattern books. But I just love, love that book. That is really neat. And, um, you know, feel free to, you know, put these on your Instagram too, because you have a great Instagram. Thank and you. I saw you guys have some beautiful, you have a section called books and you've presented some of the pages and it's been such a delight for people like us who are sitting in our homes. You know? <laughs> so we appreciate it. <laughs> Share your library with us. Um, and then my last question that I had was, is there something symbolic with this, um, just bright red that seems to follow you through your firm and even into your own home? Or do you uh, hate red? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alice, you like the red, right? You, you think it I do. A I do. We love to use, we love to use a bright color um, to, to offset any room. And it's, um, it's, it's something cheerful and, um, it's a classic. I mean, if you think of a mm -hmm. red dress, right? I mean, it's, it's, you, you can't go wrong really. So um, it's something we like to use as a pop color or, um, or as, as a paint color. Um, we love it on the back of a bookshelf, for example, um, just to peek out behind a, a set of books um, or as a, a trim on a set of Venetian blinds. I know we put it everywhere and someone said, doesn't that, it's supposed to make people feel aggressive if they look at it so much. I mean, <laughs> you sure your clients are behaving, you know, the, all this red everywhere. <laughs> so it's, our, it's our little rebellion against, you know, kind of the drab world of the drab side of the design world where everyone's mm -hmm. trying to be so tasteful and careful. And it's a little bit of a, you know, maybe an, a, a challenge to that idea that we all have to be careful. So, No, I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, is it time to answer a decorating dilemma? Okay. She writes, hi, friends. I've been listening to your podcast for a long time and really enjoy all the great tips and inspiration from your very talented guest. We recently moved from a 1920s bungalow to a newer open concept home. I'm struggling with the lack of walls and separate spaces, and I'm writing, a, I'm writing about our dining room that is bland and boring. We enter the house mainly from the back door and walk right into this area. I currently have my grandmother's round dining table, four chairs, and a round or in a rug that is too small, but just threw down until I find something else. The area is narrow, seven feet wide, so the hutch is off to the side, and you couldn't pull out the chair in the back. Is this a good spot for a built-in banquette? What kind or size rug should I use? An 8 by 10 won't allow the back door to open. When is it okay to use a round rug? Should I keep the chairs or switch them to something with fabric? I know accent walls are out, but could I do some wallpaper or paint or molding in this area since it doesn't it does have a different ceiling height from the living space? Any ideas and advice are greatly appreciated. Also, I'm having Roman shades made for the back and kitchen window. I have attached a copy of the fabric. 
<laughs> okay, so this is great. This is a lot of fun, actually, because um, is it Ginger? I think Ginger is yeah. the name. Okay, so Ginger has um, a lot of possibilities here. Um, and I, I do like a lot of her suggestions. Um, one thing I think that would be great um, would be to define that space with a different it's and it's really it's not a dining room it's a dining area and there is a sort of lower ceiling height as she said so it would be great to define it with a different color uh, paint color wallpaper there um, one thing she has to be mindful of is is maybe to capture that transition with the molding um, across the ceiling um, where the where the color changes or if she chooses to put wallpaper um, where the wallpaper ends um, just to really set that space off and um, and you know she mentions a banquette I don't see um, a banquette happening here I, I do think the sill is is probably a little low to work mm -hmm. in a, a corner banquette there um, but certainly Roman shades would would help um, add a layer of softness there or curtains if she wanted to bring curtains um, actually all all the way across that wall and even across the door in the evening if um, if she mm -hmm. wanted to sort of um, provide just an added layer of privacy um, she could also paint that door a, a really pop color maybe That's it's red, red. <laughs> paint it red <laughs> um, and um, yeah she, she has a lot of options here and the furniture the furniture is um, definitely, she can work with some of these pieces. I would either um, keep the chairs or the dining table, but not both. Um, she has the Hans Wagner wishbone chairs, which are super, and, and I have them myself. They're very comfortable. But the dining table is, is a little bit of a different, more traditional language. So she might want to think about a more contemporary pedestal table there. I, I also think that, Alice, um, we're... You talk about wallpaper or paint. I think you could absolutely anchor the table by painting a seven foot or six foot wide section of the wall to the right of the hutch and just paint, imagine just paint a big rectangle almost up to the ceiling down to the baseboard of a color and then put a painting or a mirror in the center of that. And it almost creates a backdrop or a, a, a sort of a grounding, almost the way you see in a museum. Um, or you see it in, in some lofts in New York where people on a continuous wall just paint uh, one rectangle of color and put furniture against it, and it, it grabs it and, and anchor, anchors it to the wall. That's what I would try to do. I would also try to run a molding um, that uh, aligns with the, uh, the lower ceiling so that um, you paint above that white so you don't feel like this, the ceiling is hanging down. I think that would raise everything up. Um, and I also think you could, it's a little whimsical, but why not get a round molding? They make stock round moldings, put it directly above the round table and like fill in that with some Peter leaf wallpaper or something reflective that would then, you know, and then that would be a place for your chandelier. Um, oh, that's fun. Yeah. So when you say round molding, what is this? I, I is mean, a, like a molding that describes a circle. Um, and, and, you know, and there are companies that, uh, you know, produce off the shelf moldings. I d it's almost like a big rondel or some, some round shape to put above the round table. And I do think she could do a round, you know, carpet. Um, and, and, but I think Alice's idea is great that you don't have both the table and the chairs. I think that, 
uh, it's hard to it's it's nice though to keep the table. It's a family thing. So, and I know it sounds like it, it sounds really uh, uh, kind of uh, cold hearted to say paint it red, but you could actually paint paint it or do something with it to. Right. We love the idea of a round rug that, that addresses the shape of the table. And then um, I think the chandelier could have some more presence. This one, um, it seems a little bit um, anemic. It's a little skinny. So so maybe something that um, has a little bit more body or presence or volume to address the, the round table beneath it and, and some more personality. She should have fun with it. Our first house had a kitchen that we weren't absolutely in love with. But what we did is we changed all the heart. We got wonderful um, uh, pulls on all the cabinets, just beautiful cast stainless steel pools from a Japanese company called Sukutsune. Um, and they're it's really extravagant. I mean, they you know, but all you're doing is changing the cabinet hardware to something really bespoke. And we also changed all the switch plate covers from plastic to a nice heavy brass. And sometimes just those little things you can switch out um, can can make a sense of, uh, you know, a little bit of a sense of luxury. Yes. And I think even the pattern on that back door, the upper window, is mm-hmm. kind of ornate. So the idea of coloring or painting that sounds super, you know, because yes. your, eyes, your eyes are already drawn to that when you're in the living room. Exactly. Um, so that would be really pretty. Taryn, you, I hope you have been taking notes because I love the idea of a, an incredible um, uh, switch plate cover. Um, yeah. Like yeah. The, I think that those types of elements are things mm-hmm. that you probably would be so overwhelmed with trying to pick out if you're doing a ground up project like you are. But, <laughs> but don't skip would them. Really, yeah, yeah but it would really make a difference. Mm-hmm. But why not? I mean, you, you know, companies make them and they're thick brass. They're not the thin kind of tinny mm-hmm. ones. And then I always would change out from white switches. This sounds like really a little bit too much of a tiny detail, but from white switches to brown. <laughs> no. to, yeah. So that all the switches are brown and that somehow looks like Bakelite and it just has kind of a nice sturdy feeling. Mm-hmm. All right. Putting that on my my house list. <laughs> I love it. No, I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, can I add one more idea that we didn't talk about, Alice, but uh, we did. we worked on a house um with a designer who you know and the, the rooms weren't relating it was kind of this open space thing so all the floors were painted a beautiful color and they were glossy and it kind of pulled it all together but i don't know that's that's a stretch to do that in a on a whole ground floor but it it worked. It worked in one of our projects. We love painted floors, and and it's a wonderful alternative to a carpet, um, especially if you have kids or animals, and um, it's it's an easy cleanup. Mm-hmm. Oh, how would wait? So how would she do a painted floor in a big open concept? You, you like paint that? the whole thing. You just do the whole thing. Okay. Everything, every square inch of the wood, it gets painted. Every square inch, and don't fill in between the boards. You let you have to see the cracks, you know, and then you get this wonderful, mm-hmm. lustrous, glossy, super industrial, you know, glossy paint. I forget what kind of paint it is, but um, I imagine part of the appeal is it wearing, right? Uh, well, like it, would... it, 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 it hasn't worn at all. Oddly, it hasn't worn, and it's like a beach house in their mm-hmm. sand. I don't know what kind of paint it is, but I suppose if <laughs> that's it's a soft... really, right. That's a really snappy, high gloss look, which is one thing. And then there's the the beautiful sort of time worn uh, floors mm-hmm. that you think about. In um, gosh, I'm I'm thinking of um, 
James Ivory's house in, in not far from Peter's um, oh, right. in, in Hudson, right. where they, he has these beautiful um, diamond patterns on the floor that are mm-hmm. all painted and, and they show the traffic patterns in the house. And those are mm-hmm. glorious too, but a, a different kind of painted floor for sure. But if the okay, wood is yeah. soft, it doesn't work because then you're going to get all these dents. So you have to, it has to, you have to do a test sample in a closet before you commit to it. Right. In, in a house that we share with family in Massachusetts, um, there's a tradition of painting the floor with glossy paint and then um, flicking drops of paint at it. I call it the Jackson Pollock effect and just splattering paint all over in little drops, like, you know, like bristle brush. Right. Mm-hmm. So yep. we have in our bedroom, we have green um, and then it's sprayed with red and white and yellow little. But it, but it's, it, there's no, you have to literally take a bristle and go like this and like spray the paint yeah. all over. There's no shortcut. No, and <laughs> and actually, when we had the when we had our bedroom redone, I have to say, whoever did it w- was a little lazy. Says so it is does look a little <laughs> too much like a Jackson Pollock. <laughs> Taryn, I feel like you should do that in your artist. Oh yeah, law. I should. Taryn is a, a big brush, the you, big you, one. The... You paint with oils, or do you? Uh... I'm watercolor, watercolor is my main wonderful. one. Yeah, wonderful. yeah, wonderful. so. Oh, well, you don't know. My work could be ugly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do. I, I feel like watercolor and architecture or painting architecture with watercolor is the most gratifying because it's such a softness to it and then such a beautiful structural. Anyway, it's, yeah, my favorite. So. It's the best for architectural renderings. And it's the for whole sure. tradition of the Beaux-Arts. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, mine look just like that. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> Anyway, but yes, that is beautiful. I love that idea for the floor too. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys killed it. Yes. Good luck, Ginger. Good luck, Ginger. We're thinking about you. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> Send photos. <laughs> All right. Well, Peter and Alice, thank you so much for joining us. This was a treat. Thank, thank you, you Caroline. Caroline. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Karen. Absolute delight. Okay. Yes. Your work is beautiful and everybody needs to go to your website and just, uh, it is wonderful to go through you're very kind thank you thank you can y'all can y'all before you go can you tell everyone where to find you follow you and see your work uh so our website is ppapc.com um and our instagram is peter penoyer architects um and we have uh you know we've been published in architectural digest and and uh, various other Mm-hmm. Uh, places and you can uh, if you google the firm's name you'll see uh, you know if you hit that tab that says news you'll see things that have happened in the last few months um, including a building that's going up on Madison Avenue and 79th Street right now which is fun and Peter and Ann Walker have a number of uh, tremendous books um, that are worth checking out as and well. we have a book coming out on the house in Ohio that's going to be <gasps> in a year Ooh, probably right. about 360 pages. There's so much art in the house. And so it's a big, um, and then we have a, a book about our own work coming out a year later. And then a book about the architecture of uh, apartment houses, classic New York, 1920s apartment houses designed by Rosario Candela, which I'm working on with two other people who are really uh, experts in this. So, 
Very exciting. Oh my gosh. I can't <laughs> wait for that Ohio book, especially. I'm like tired of talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, it is 10 p.m. So, yeah. wow. And that's our show. You can find all of the show notes on our blog, howtodecorate.com slash podcast. To send in a decorating dilemma, email your questions to podcast.ballarddesigns.net so we can help you with your space. And of course, follow us on social media at Ballard Designs. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Until next time, happy, happy decorating. decorating.